Theron mentioned, we're starting a new series, Judges, and the title is When Everyone's Right. If you close out the book of Judges, that's what uh, it says. It's when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and Judges is a sad picture of that. We'll get to those closing stories, obviously, at the end of the series, but uh, this idea that we do what was right in our eyes and not necessarily what's right in God's. But uh, Judges is a very fascinating book, and I, I start off thinking about uh, the idea of potential, because that's what Judges starts with. And I was thinking about how most of us, I'm sure, understand the joy of reaching the culmination of a project. If you've ever worked on something for a while and, and you see it come to fruition, maybe it's the fruit uh, of some type of hard work. Maybe you've studied hard uh, through a whole semester of school and seen the fruit of accomplishing or finishing the class, getting good grades, or maybe years of research and development. And we're all ready, no matter what kind of work or investment we do, uh, to fully reap the rewards and then completely capitalize on the investment of time, energy, and money. It wouldn't make sense to any of us to just toss that work aside and just go in the opposite direction. You imagine a company investing years and, and maybe millions in a product and then at the end say, you know what, nah, we just don't want to do that. We'll just stick with what we have. It's not, not worth it. Uh, if you look at the time and the energy invested, we want to see it come to fruition. The point of all the work, the planning, the creativity, the execution is to see it accomplish its potential to come to fruition if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, we find a promise that's given to Abraham, and it's a promise about building something great. It states this, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. God promised to Abraham to build a great nation, a nation that would be set apart. It's a critical idea, a nation to fill the promised land, the land that he was sent to, a nation that would be a proclamation of God's greatness and glory, and it would enjoy the blessings of the gracious almighty God in a very unique way. Well, as we hit Judges, it's about 700 plus years have passed, have transpired. Uh, they've walked through some difficult times. Uh, through those 700 years, they've walked through years of slavery, something that was predicted to Abraham by God in Genesis 15, 13. Yet during that slavery, they've grown into the large nation that God promised they would be, and they've come out with great substance, also what would be promised in Genesis 15, 14 from their slavery. They uniquely grew in Egypt, as a nation without a lot of intermarriage and cultural or spiritual adaptation from the Egyptians. There they are parked for centuries, and yet they don't pick up everything from the Egyptians. Why? Because the Egyptians found their livelihood as shepherds beneath them. And what it did was it made an Israelite basically unmarriable as a general rule. The Egyptians' arrogance was used by God to protect Israel, and so they grew uncorrupted to a large degree by the culture and religion of their oppressors. They were not infiltrated. So God has been working from his promise. He told Abraham that his, his 
kids, his children, his nation would, would be in slavery. In that slavery, God has blessed them still. It doesn't make the slavery right. It just means that God took that for his good. And through that, they've become a large nation. They are then miraculously freed, as God promised, from that reigning world power. And don't, don't miss this. The Egyptians remain a world power. We'll talk about this. There's nations that are going to move across the promised land, battling each other. But, but they are freed from them in a very dramatic way. They then wander for 40 years due to their rebellion, but now they're ready to move in to take the promised land to fulfill their potential. 700 years building since the promise to Abraham, building a nation that will occupy the land. And the book of Judges brings us to the fulfillment of that promise. It is the book historically. So placing yourself in the time that God has that comes with that great potential. It is important as we walk in the Judges to understand that as we stare at their failure, and that's what we're going to see, that God had been building to something amazing for them, and this was supposed to be the time of fruit. Israel is at the cusp of occupying the land God has promised to them. They're going to live under the government of God's direct rule, a theocracy, the ideal rule. It couldn't be better government to be his blessed nation, to have in this moment what the prophet Zechariah will prophesy for the distant future. And that is this, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree, which actually Zechariah is prophesying much later, and he's speaking of a millennial kingdom. But honestly, as judges is walking forward, this is the blessing, this was the, the design, this was the potential that the nation of Israel had. Yet sadly, judges instead tells the story of their colossal failure, their rejection of God's direct rule, a picture of what we as humans will do with the amazing potential that God bestows upon us. Tragically, the one people in all the world to whom had been entrusted the highest form of rule possible, there is no better rule, there is no better government than God's direct rule had failed to honor it. Now, the book of Judges comes to us with two introductions. We're going to be talking about the first one this morning and the second one next week. Each begins with an account or statement of Joshua's death. The first one functions as a historical introduction. It is giving us a picture of what the next step or action was for Israel. Historically, after you wander in the desert, after you get out of Egypt, after you have a, a sense of military conquest, the next step for the nation is to occupy the land. And the first introduction is Joshua moving off the scene and then the need to occupy. The second introduction, Judges 2, 6 through chapter 3, verse 6, is what was called the literary introduction, and it gives us the situation seen in Israel. It's going to tell us where their heart is, and it's going to set up the narratives that follow. And all those narratives are stories of judges, and that's what typically we think of when we think of judges. What is judges? A bunch of judges ruling and freeing them from oppression. That is the setup to the whole story, but we begin with the historical introduction, and it's a call to take action. They need to occupy the land. Now, it's important to keep in mind that before this call, Joshua had recently been victorious in two very 
important military campaigns. And, and you have a map in your hands that I'll refer to. It's, it's a map of failure, basically, to see that. But you can understand right in the middle of the map, roughly uh, in the middle, you go where Israel enters the promised land. And so when Joshua enters the promised land, he moves south down on the map and he has conquest all the way to Kadesh Barnea, uh, taking out, when I say the Canaanites. And when you read it in Joshua, it's this huge victories and he does have them. And what he's doing is as he fights south, the, the image that's planted in the mind of the Canaanites is that God is fighting for Israel. Uh, that the fear complex, if you're thinking of how people are psychologically, the inhabitants of the promised land are petrified about the Israelites with this conquest. So, so when Joshua works all the way down south, he then very quickly goes all the way back north, past the point of their camp, and does the same thing again. Now, going north, there was larger kingdoms, larger cities, more people. Yet again, they have a complete conquering of the region. Now, I use that word carefully, because it's a conquest, a military campaign, but we have to understand this. They have not necessarily conquered every city in those areas. They have not occupied it. They've come in and defeated certain kingdoms. They've broken the hold, so to speak. And as you walk into the situation of Judges, understand that recently Joshua has run both south and north. Israel has defeated Canaan. They have put their stamp on there. The inhabitants of these lands, though not all defeated, and we're going to recognize that from Judges, they are all under this fear of God, actually, recognizing his miraculous hand in the battles. And if you read through Joshua, you see miraculous workings. Uh, God extends the day, sends down hail, and then just the fact that they're able to win. And it says over and over again that God is fighting. God delivered. God gave them into the hands. But keep in mind, this is conquest. This is not occupation. Judges is a shift. They are now sent to occupy. And that's the situation that the tribes are in. Go take action. Go move into your house, so to speak. Occupy, live in the promised land. And so the second phase of conquest, something commanded, and this is critical and enabled by God, was to fully occupy the promised land and expel all Canaanites. And I'm using that word Canaanite to refer to everyone that's in the land of Canaan. As you read through scripture, you're going to see a lot of different people groups listed. And sometimes it separates Canaanites as its own separate group. And sometimes the idea of a Canaanite is anyone that lives in the land of Canaan. And so I'm saying it in that context, get rid of all Canaanites and their practice. And it's in this context that the book of Judges begins, a book that has the great leader Joshua leaving the scene, and you see that repeated two times to let us know, he's completed his divine ministry. The people must step forward now to accomplish God's call for them. And I want you to realize as you read through the book of Judges, and I would encourage this, I did this when we were going through Leviticus, I encourage you at some point in the next couple weeks to sit down and it'll take you a little bit of time, but sit down and try to read through Judges in one sitting to get a framework of the book. It's going to take you probably three hours to work through it. But sit down and read through it. And as you look at that, you're going to see a very sad and frail story of occupation. But as you're reading it, understand this. God 
gives this story in the best possible light, which tells you how frail and weak their occupation was, how rebellious they were as they walked in. And so the story unfolds, the beginning of Judges starts with a question, who's going to occupy? Who should lead? Joshua has led, Moses has led. Who is going to lead into the promised land to now occupy it? And God makes very clear that Judah is the one that should be set to lead the charge. And so it begins with an illustration of, we start the book of defeat with an illustration of success. Judges 1, 1 through 8, and I'll be reading through that if you want to follow along. It says, now after the death of Joshua, which sets our, the premise of our introduction, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord saying, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And, and don't miss the innumerable times that God says he has delivered, he has delivered, he set him in there. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my lot that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him and Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. And they found Adonibezek in Bezek and they fought against him. And Adonibezek is just the name of the ruler for that city. It was a, it was a title. Uh, so king of Bezek. And they fought against him and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonibezek fled and they pursued after him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonibezek said, three score and seven kings have their thumbs. So 70 kings have, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table as I have done. So God hath requited me, or God has rewarded me. God has punished me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So what do we see here? And this is how we'll walk through these stories. One, Judah advances as the Lord has directed. They partner with Simeon. Why? Well, one, Going way back, both had the same mom, Leah, but really they are partnering together because Simeon's territory is within Judah's territory. Draw a circle and then a small circle at the bottom and there's Simeon's territory. So it makes sense for them to go fight together. Judah says, hey, help me fight all of them off in the process. Basically, we're going to take care of your territory. Another thing that you want to notice, the Lord delivered into their hands. This history will speak constantly to what the Lord does, that he accomplishes, that he fulfills his word. It's a clear proclamation of who made victory possible, and it's an acknowledgement of God's continued presence and battling in his name. This is critical as you walk into Judges. Judges is a book of failure. And what we need to understand, it's a book of failure, our failure, not God's. And so Joshua moves off the scene. Is God still fighting with Israel? Well, yes, he is. In the first phrases that come out of the mouth of the writer of Judges, the Holy Spirit-inspired writing, you're hearing that God's presence was with them. God delivered. He directed them to fight and delivered them. And then an interesting custom is followed with the conquered king. And you can imagine you cut off your thumbs and your toes. And again, because scripture lists something doesn't mean that God says you should cut off everyone's thumbs and toes. 
It is just recording. Scripture always records reality. It's not a fanciful tale, but instead shows what took place. And so there's no saying that God said to do this. However, if you look at their culture and the time, by doing that, you made a king unfit for battle. Uh, It's hard to hold a sword without a thumb. It's hard to run without your big toe. And so what they did basically removed him from ever being a king because one of your main responsibilities as king was to lead your city-state in war and to conquer. And then I want you to notice Jerusalem. If you read the first couple chapters of Judges, it can be very confusing. By verse 21 of this chapter, it says that Benjamin could not take Jerusalem and that the Jebusites still had control. And it says here they burned the city with fire, but then again they brought Adonibazek back. And I want you to see something. It's obvious that Judah has captured Jerusalem, that a portion has been burned, but I want you to see the first hint, and we'll know this by later on, of failure. They've obviously not occupied the city. They have not taken the city and made it their own, because what you're going to find out is that the Jebusites have control of Jerusalem from now until David, King David, defeats it. And so you're going to see a setup for failure. But here in the beginning, what do we see? We're supposed to see victory. They had the city. They brought a defeated king back to the city. And then the, the chapter of uh, this chapter in Judges continues now. The dialogue of victory keeps moving forward. And we kind of take a look around the area of Hebron and then the smashing success of Caleb and then an introduction to what will be the first judge, which is Othniel, and some of his exploits early on in life. And so as you move to Judges 1.9, you look here and it says, Afterwards, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain. And this is a repeat. You'll hear this and you'll read this in Joshua as well. And in the south and in the valley, and Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron before was Kiriath Arba, and they slew Sheshai and Abiman and Talmai. And from thence he went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir before was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kiriath Sefer and taketh it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, to wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, to wife. And it came to pass when she came to him, talking to Caleb, or actually to her husband, that she moved him to ask of her father a field. And then she lighted from off her donkey, and Caleb said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land, in other words, a very dry one. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. And then we have a note about uh, some of Moses' relatives, which will play a part in, the, in Deborah and Barak's story. And the children of, of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees, so in other words, away from Jericho, with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, surrounding that area, which lieth in the south of Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And then Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. And the name of the city was called Hormah, which means destruction. Also, Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ascalon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain. And this is a critical transitional phrase, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Or if you look at could not, 
used the word would not, because that is the complete implication of Scripture. They didn't do this because they made an excuse for it. And, they, and then verse 20, And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, as Moses said, and he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. And you might wonder, why are we hearing a repeated story? Why are we looking at, why is woven into the fabric of what Judah is accomplishing, because the whole not taking the valley takes place after Joshua's death, but now we're talking about Caleb and what he accomplished Why repeat that? Because that's in Joshua 15. And the point is to set up a very sharp contrast. Caleb is successful, and Judah ultimately is not successful. And then it wants to share why he's successful. Who does he defeat? And it's those names that I'll mispronounce a second time here. Sheshay, Ahiman, and Talmai. And they're listed by name here. They are the sons of Anak in verse 20. And what does he do to them? He gets rid of them. He expels them. He actually kills them. And, and Anak was Anakim. These are the giants of the land. These are the people when Israel went to spy out the land 40 years prior that they saw these people and said, they're going to murder us. We are not strong enough to defeat giants. And I don't want you to miss the implication with the iron chariots and the idea of giants, what petrified Israel 40 years prior, what led them to say, we'll never win here, we'll never take it, we're not strong enough, which is the whole point. God lists that story to show you the contrast between Caleb, who kills giants under God's power, and Judah, who says, eh, I don't like iron chariots. It bothers me. You see, Caleb was delivered by God as promised. And here's the thing that's going to come up. He trusted God. God had promised him something, and he went forward under God's promise, under God's will, and under God's power. There's also an introduction to Othniel. He plays a prominent role as the head-off judge. Obviously, this man was a warrior. He conquers Debir, which must have been a formidable feat for Caleb to offer his daughter in marriage to the one who's victorious. Remember, Caleb is killing giants. This must have been a pretty intense place to take if he's like, hey, I'll give up my daughter for this, for a guy that's the giant slayer. And so he marries his cousin, Aksha, or niece, depending on interpretation. Now, there's a big discussion on the whole phrase that it's the son of Canaz, the younger brother of Caleb. Uh, if you go through all writing, So if you go back through historical writings, oftentimes it's listed as a younger brother. However, if you read through Scripture, Caleb has a different dad. He's not the son of Canaz. He's the son of another longer name that starts with a J that I mispronounced. So he, throughout the Scripture, there's a different genealogy. And so from my study, my personal opinion is that he is a nephew of Caleb, and he's marrying his cousin. It really doesn't matter in the sense of timing because he could have been a much younger brother. Some people get over the genealogy by saying the mom married somebody else. It just doesn't seem as likely to me. I think the genealogy points to him being a nephew. On top of that, with the idea of brother and nephew, there's some similarities in the wordings in Hebrew. And so regardless of that, he marries either his cousin or his niece. And I want us to note something about her because this is what we see from her. We don't hear about her later on But I just want you to see the influence of who you might marry. This is a lady with gumption. 
She's given a piece of land. Actually, she pushes her husband to go ask her dad for something, and then, like a wise woman, doesn't trust the husband to do it and does it herself, right? She just takes care of it, and it's done. She goes to her dad and says, hey, I got a piece of land, but I need some springs. How about some springs? I need to take care of this. And I, I want you to see how she's thinking, and I want you to see that this is a wife that he is getting who is intelligent and decisive, and don't underestimate how that will be playing a part in Othniel's life later on when he becomes the first judge to push back against the oppression. And as you get to the stories in Judges, sometimes you're going to read four verses about Othniel and think that the oppression wasn't a lot. And I'll talk about this in a couple weeks. Actually, what he fought back was probably one of the worst oppressions that Israel faced because it came from the north and he's in the south. And so it went through all the land. And actually, he accomplished a ton with what he did. And I just want us to get an, an insight because scripture tells us about her for a reason. And I think you can take a side lesson. It makes a big difference in who you marry and what direction you'll go. And I see here somebody with, with gumption, with a backbone, with, with, with decision, with intellect that's diving in. And her influence will be obvious in the life of her husband when he makes very decisive actions and accomplishes it. You get the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, settle in the area near Jericho, the city of palm trees, by the way, which is super arid area. They say about four inches of rain, but they still dry farm, but they were more nomads. They're going to play a role in the defeat of Sisera by Deborah and Barak. So as you have this historical introduction, we're introduced to the first judge. We're seeing his ability to fight. We're seeing who his family is, understanding a little bit about him. We're seeing where a group of people settle. And we're going to see that they're going to be instrumental in the defeat later on of another group of oppressors. You find Judah and Simeon doing something, and that's destroying the city of Zephath. By the way, that was an area of prior defeat I'm guessing that in Numbers, when you read about it, Numbers 14:45, it's called Hormah, and I'm guessing that's when it got its Israelite name, was back with Moses, because as they decided to invade the land after God said not to, after the rebellion, they are defeated in Kadesh Barnea, and they go, I mean, they're, they're defeated going in, and this is an area of yet another defeat for them as they're pushed out. And so they come, and I want you to see something, they do what they're supposed to do. And what we're seeing in this idea of victory is obedience. They were to commit these cities to destruction. They were not to let people remain there. They're not supposed to make deals with the Canaanites. They're not attempt to assimilate them into their world. And that's the danger and downfall of what will clearly be seen throughout the book of Judges. Because we're about to walk into where they fail. We even find something fascinating. If you look at the map that you have in front of you, you'll notice some things circled in blue. You'll find those three cities circled in blue because ultimately they don't maintain control of them. They, they, don't, win, they don't win the coast. But here in the victory speech, we realize God has given Judah three cities on the coast that they've defeated, but obviously they don't fully occupy them or drive the Canaanites out as commanded. Because the closing port of verse 19 is the failure that's going to follow in fully occupying the land. There's another victory story in between, another illustration of what could be done. But when it says they could not, and, and as I mentioned, they would not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. And though seemingly subtle and brief, it marks the turn from success to failure. This is the switch where suddenly we watch Israel fail and as we watch Israel fail, we have to look in the mirror and recognize 
the potential for failure ourselves. One writer notes this, the indication of failure is put briefly, but it is highly significant. It is that the cities so taken and then occupied were located only in the mountain area and not in the valley. The valley in view was clearly the flatland near the Mediterranean. The significance is that Judah and Simeon, and this is important, chose to content themselves merely with the mountainous land rather rather than risk engagement with those with greater earthly weapons. There's no doubt about that. And in this, they were already showing a serious lack of faith in God. I'm not taking the valley because it is too hard. They have too much advancement. They're too strong for me. We're not going against iron chariots. It's not possible. And what do we have right before that? Caleb went against giants and beat them. And God delivered these three coastal cities into your charge. The failure, and I want you to understand this, is undermining God's character. They had the wrong perspective about God, his will, and his power. Now, I want to mention this because these kind of passages get manipulated. This is not, this is not teaching you to have enough faith and anything you want will happen. This is not you go sell your house and invest in some random thing because you're going to make millions because God says, put enough faith in it, he'll do it. God hasn't promised you that. If someone tells you that, they're lying. I want you to realize this, that Israel had received a direct command to fight and knew that God would bring the victory. And so it is an illustration of disobedience directly in the face of God's direct command And it's saying, I can't accomplish this. I can't do this. It is, though, a passage making clear that we tend to distrust and thus disobey God. There is a call to live a certain way as a believer. And what do we do mentally? Sometimes I can't do it. It's too much to ask. I don't want to give that up. That is the type of response that is here. This idea that God says, yes, you can and and you should. And we say, no, it's too much for us. Now, before we get to the list of Israel's failure to occupy, we do get another victory story tucked in the middle here. And this is Ephraim, most likely, possibly Manasseh's defeat of the town of Bethel and was a city on the border between the land of Benjamin and Ephraim. And it says, in the house of Joseph, they also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph sent to describe Bethel or to conquer. Now, the name of the city before was Luz. And the spies saw a man come forth out of the city, and they said unto him, Show us, we pray thee, the entrance into the city, and we will show thee mercy. And when he showed them the entrance into the city, they smote the city with the edge of the sword, but they let go the man and all his family. In other words, they annihilated the town, but the guy that helped him in is shown mercy as promised. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and called the name thereof Luz, which is the name thereof unto this day. And I want you to see important components of this victory. Now, the verse right before all this happens is 21, and it's talking about defeat here as well. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Verse 21, after Judah's failure is Benjamin's failure. Then we see one more glimpse of what's possible. How is it handled? Another tribe engages himself in the task. I want you to notice they took initiative. They asked somebody, how do we get in the city? How do we take care of this? How do we do this? And then they followed through on what God had intended. The man who helped them was given mercy. I want you to realize any Canaanite could have left Canaan. They could have 
left and gone. They were allowed to leave. They chose to fight. He's let go. He goes north into the land of the Hittites. He's in the south or right in the middle region. Notice he doesn't just go right out of where Ephraim is. He goes all the way out of Israel. And I want you to understand that they obviously communicated to him, don't go or don't stay in the promised land. Get out of our territory. This is what God has given us. You go out. And he does. He goes right north of the the uppermost portion of Israel. And he builds another town, Luz, amongst the Hittites. And we get this story, but we need to understand there was an obvious understanding that no Canaanites were to stay in the promised land. And it's given us as a contrast again to show us something. They both knew what they were supposed to do and the task was possible. They would need to engage in it just like anything else. They had to be involved in this, but God could and would give the victory. That's just a brief interlude though. Now we turn to the failure begun by Judah and carried forward by Benjamin and not taking Jerusalem when they failed to to fully occupy. And I just want you to listen. I'm going to read 27 through 36, and I call this the roll call of defeat. Let me walk through this. Neither did, and that's just saying in comparison with Judah's failure and Benjamin's failure, neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth and her towns, nor Tanakh and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Ibliam and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out, or but did not utterly drive them out. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalal, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Alab, nor of Axib, nor of Helba, nor of Aphek, nor of Rahab. They just did nothing, apparently. Um, and it says this, but the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. And that's a switch there. First, it's the Canaanites dwelling with the Israelites. And now the Asherites don't even get, they don't even become dominant in the region they're in. They're suddenly dwelling with the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemes, nor the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but he dwelt among the Canaanites. In other words, they stayed right there. And those two towns are in the mountains that they're supposed to have won. The inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became tributaries unto them. So we see a shift. It's a historical look at what happened. They're dwelling among them. Then they get the upper hand. They lose the upper hand. But keep in mind, there's something that's happening. The Canaanites are not leaving the promised land. The Canaanites are staying there doing what they normally do. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. But the Amorites would dwell in Mount Heras, in Ajalon, and in Shalabim, yet the hand of the house of Joseph prevailed so that they became tributaries. So the Amorites were a much bigger group, but the ones in the territory of Dan, they, didn't even, they did not let Dan live with them. They forced them into the mountains and, and hiding out. And you'll read later on how Dan looks for their own land, which would have been disobedience to God, finding a place that they could dwell. Why? Because they couldn't conquer their land. And the coast, and then there's a couple cities of the Amorites that do 
fall under Ephraim's control, and the coast of the Amorites was from going up to Akrabim from the rock and upward. In other words, it's just telling you the breadth of the Amorite control. If you look at your slide, which was going to be a slide, it's now a handout, which I think is a little easier. I want you to notice what is unoccupied. Every one of the tribes failed to win the valley. They failed oftentimes to win what would have been the most fertile land. It's going to be the land most used by these huge kingdoms as they fought, but they did not occupy the promised land. It's all picking up from Judah's failure to win their coast or drive the Canaanites completely out of that area. I want you to notice that when Israel was stronger, they did something that God did not command. They put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not get rid of them. Notice that toward the end, the tribe of Naphtali failed to remove the Canaanites from the hills. The towns of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath stayed in Canaanite control, though they were paying tribute to them. Notice that Dan is forced into the mountains by the Amorites, though, of course, the Amorites are going to pay tribute to another tribe that could conquer them. As one writer noted, the tribes did not want to fight the Canaanites where they, speaking of the Canaanites, were strongest, but even worse, The people were already, sown so soon after Joshua's death, losing their faith in the mighty provision of God. I want us to read defeat the right way. It's not that they had iron chariots or that these people were smarter, and they were. By the way, Canaanites were not some um, group of people that were backward. Actually, in in many ways, they were much more advanced than other civilizations. They had to be to, to farm those communities. They had a lot of interaction with people. The land of Israel was a Mecca. Everything ran through there. And so it was, a, it was a central point, a hub. And so these people were smart. They might have known different war tactics. They had iron chariots long before everyone else did. They were involved this way. But the reality is this, the failure to occupy is because they had lost faith in the mighty provision of God. And so we close with what Pastor Theron read. We close the first introduction to Judges, the take action introduction, with a severe reprimand and confrontation of the nation by the angel of the Lord, which means by God. It's a theophany. This is God's presence coming down, a visible manifestation of God. I'm going to read those again because I want you to, to picture in your mind. Joshua is moving off the scene. Judah is leading the conquest. They have victory, but then it's just defeat washing through. They're failing to do what God said. And then here is the the massive reprimand. It's imagine calling the kids in. They've just been horrible for two weeks, and you're bringing them to task. But then make that exponential. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal, which is where they'd be be camped, to Bochim. And no one knows where Bochum is, and I'll explain that later. To Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before thee, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord." 
Just as a hint, Bochum means weeping. So they called the place weeping. We don't know where it is. It could have been a mile outside of Gilgal. It could have been 20 miles outside of Gilgal. It's obviously where they sacrificed, but it's named crying. That's the idea behind it. I want us to see something in the reprimand. They failed to believe God at his word. They failed to believe him. He said they would conquer the people, yet they looked at what the people had and chose disbelief. They failed to follow through completely when they had victory. Every instance of forced labor and tribute is not a victory. It is actually another illustration of disobedience. Every time you let a nation work for you, every time you let a nation pay you to stay where they're at, that is a contract. That is a deal. That is, as the words here say, a league there. And you're not to make any leagues with them. What happens when they stay in the land? They continue worshiping their gods their way. The pagan faith is emphasized. And those gods, God said, would snare them. And we think of a snare as getting tripped up. The word for snare, it references a bird trap and there's no getting out. In other words, he says, they're going to be a thorn in your side. They're going to bother you. And he says, they're going to get you. They're going to capture your heart. You're going to fail now. And it says they cried, which is the word for bokum. But understand this, they failed to respond to this reprimand in repentance. And this is an important highlight to see because when we read this, we tend to think, oh, they're so sad. They're crying. And they were. They were dejected. They sacrificed. They did. But they failed to respond in repentance. An author, a guy named Arthur Lewis wrote this, true repentance must go beyond tears of sorrow and achieve right about face, a turning of one's entire life from sin to a walk that pleases the Lord. And guess what? They don't do that. How do we know they didn't repent here? It's because all of Judges is a picture of no repentance. It's of them crying, complaining, help me, and their sacrifice But ultimately, there's no real repentance. By the way, I want to remind us of something that Samuel taught. And by the way, Samuel is the last judge. His sons are considered judges, same word for him, but they were evil and corrupt. But he's one of the last judges. And he said something to King Saul. He said, to obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Israel was dejected, they were crying, they were complaining, they were bothered, but they lacked real repentance. You see, in response to Joshua, before he had passed off the scene, they had made a promise to God. They had committed to faithfulness and obedience. Joshua 24, 23 through 24 says this, Now therefore, Joshua says, Put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. And what did God just reprimand them about? They don't obey the voice of God. So in other words, they've already broken the covenant they made with God that they would be faithful and obey his voice. And God says, you're not obeying my voice. They didn't do what they said they would do. And so as we begin in Judges, this historical introduction, we sadly find a couple things to be true. Israel lacked trust in God. They do not fully occupy because the situation becomes bigger than they are 
and seem too big for God from their viewpoint. That's actually very critical as we look at our lives. See, they justified their decision. They justified their sin, which is quite presumptuous, and they gave themselves permission to tweak God's direct mandates. Again, I'm going to mention this. This is not manipulating God so you get what you want. I'm talking about direct commands from God that he makes clear are possible to us and that we should be victorious in, that we negate. We tweak God's commands and we give ourselves permission to do that. We say to God, I can do this. It's okay. Why? Because we lack trust in God. They contented themselves with what they accomplished, a blatant expression of disbelief and disobedience. You see, they lacked, or Israel lacked, complete obedience. Even when they gained the upper hand, they let the Canaanites remain, not what was required, and often just put them to forced labor or providing tribute. And you might say, Kenny, you've talked about this. I'm going to hammer it again. Judah and Simeon go in and completely destroy Zepheth, or Hormah. The example of Caleb was to expel the sons of Anak, which meant he killed the sons of Anak. The example with the city of Luz or Bethel was the survivor leaves Israel and plants a city in the Hittites, out of Israel. There is no room for false worship. There is no room for this pagan practice. There is no, we need to have them hang out. Now, it's tempting to have them hang out because they are more advanced agriculturally than Israel. Israel is coming from the Delta region. They've been growing where the, where the river brings both water and fertile soil, and all you have to do is plant. I'm not making it overly simple. I'm just saying it's completely different. And the river brings the mud, the soil, and it brings the water, and you grow. That is not the case in Canaan. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, but you've got to milk that honey out of the land because it is not easy. And so they're going to want to know. They're going to be drawn to their technology. We don't think of it that way because we think if you don't have an iPhone, you're not technologically advanced. But as you're walking into a new region, you're looking for new farming techniques. You want to understand it. Well, everything about life was linked to their faith. And as we look at the pagan religion, the Baal worship, which is wicked perversion, but it all linked to harvest and fertility. And so if you're struggling to farm a land and then you're going to start being tempted to say, well, maybe I should worship their gods. Our God is too weak. And what have you already conceded? That there's more than one God, which they should know better by now. And so God said, get rid of them. They got to go because you're to be a nation. Remember uh, Abraham's promise. You're to bless the world. You're supposed to be a light to the world. You're supposed to show people what it means to be God's people. Their distrust of God exposed their disbelief in God and ultimately had them living in disobedience against God. I'm going to say that one more time. Their distrust of God exposed their disbelief in God and ultimately had them living in disobedience against God. And then I'll add this thought. What do you think your distrust does? Same thing. Because we have been, in my mind, picking on Israel just a bit. And this book picks on Israel a good bit. But see, Israel is supposed to be the example. And so what is it showing us? It's showing us us, what we fall into. They had committed to serving only God and obeying him. Yet as Judges begins, we find they were not really committed to that. They made promises. 
I'm going to serve God. I only serve God. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to follow through. Don't we make the same kind of commitments? Have, I, have we not heard that and, and said that? We go to scripture and we're going to do what God says. And then we find a way to tweak God's commands because yeah, it's tough in our society. How am I supposed to make it? How can I live the way I want to live? If I don't tweak God's commands, I won't get what I want. Right. Maybe you won't, but you'll be obeying God. So I put here as a question, because obviously when you go through Judges and you're looking at history and you're walking through narratives, we need to bring it back and make sure that we're looking at a mirror and saying, do we see ourselves here? I'll be preaching to uh, the kids in, in camp, and we're going to be walking through in the morning through the story of Jonah, and I start out telling them it's a mirror of us. It shows us what we do. Judges and I'll, I'll talk more about it next week, but this is the greatest potential. They, they were building for 700 years to occupy this land, to be ruled by God directly, and they throw it away. We are his church, and guess what we do so often? Throw it away. It's been polluted. We've talked about this. I didn't do this on purpose through First and Second Peter and Titus. been polluted with false teaching and pagan influence, if you want to call it that. And that's exactly what happens here. So here's a question. Where will we be found? If, if and it's not going to happen, someone was writing our, our, our story, our history, our conquest, where will we be found? Are we going to be found to be content with partial obedience? That was their downfall. They didn't do what God said. They try to occupy, but we didn't boot them out. Well, we want to be nice to them. Why not? Why shouldn't we? We should be accommodating. No, because what happens with partial obedience is it led to discrediting God. Are we going to be the ones that discredit God, to look at God and say, yeah, he can't conquer in this society. God can't win in this culture. God's light can't shine here. He can't make this possible. Are we living up to the potential he gives us? We're looking at Israel not living up to their potential, and we've seen the Messiah come. We've seen him die on the cross for our sins. We're on that side of his story, and his whole story builds to that. What have we done with the potential that's in front of us? And then the other one, are we going to weep and sacrifice yet neglect to repent? I'm not negating that they cried their heart out and that they meant it. They were dejected. They were broken. They were sad about their sin. And that they then took animals and had a plethora of sacrifices and they did them with all the sincerity possible, but they did not repent. Because if you repent, you change course. And are we going to be people who weep and we sacrifice, yet neglect to repent of what takes place? And I put here, how will our lives read? If it was written in a book, how would it read? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come study your word as we dive into a tough uh, book of the Bible, a book that we need, but sometimes we avoid because what we watch is failure after failure after failure. Help us to, to recognize the mirror to us, how we have lacked uh, in our own lives, and our own spiritual lives, have we've not lived up to the potential you've given us uh, to be your light in this world, to spread your truth, to make that the priority. Help us to learn from the story of Israel as you've given it. Help us to understand the lessons you want us to learn and to grow from those. Give us the courage to repent 
in a real way instead of just cry and sacrifice. Give us the courage to follow through in our obedience and not tweak your commands, recognizing that any tweak of your command is just blatant disobedience. And help us understand that as we don't trust you, as we don't follow through on what you've commanded us, we scream to the world that you are not worthy. But you are worthy, Lord. You are the all-powerful, almighty one. You are the only one who can save. Help us to be shining lights for you. In your precious and holy name, amen.